Okay. Stop having fun. That's enough. Don't enjoy yourselves too much. You're at EU. Uh, it's lovely to hear the sound of all that talk. And um, uh, you can continue afterwards. Uh, the topic of today, however, is not who you can vote for, but who should you vote for. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for the gifts that you give to us. We have so much from your hand of grace. And we pray that you would strengthen us now as we seek uh, to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Uh, give us your heavenly wisdom without which we cannot please you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now they say at dinner parties that it's important to avoid three topics. Uh, religion, politics and sex. Uh, that's always struck me as both gutless and wise at the same time. It's gutless because uh, these are the, exactly the topics that make for vigorous, passionate discussion. But it's wise because these are exactly the topics that make for vigorous, passionate discussion, which leads to arguments, fights and insults. Uh, well, in the spirit, hopefully, of courage, with a little bit of wisdom thrown in, we're going to take on at least uh, two of those topics this afternoon and we'll see if I can find a way to complete the trifecta. <laughs> November the 24th, as you may have heard, is the current leading contender for the date upon which you'll be fined if you don't participate in our democratic system. Apparently the Treasurer let it slip on the weekend. November the 24th, get it in your diaries, be nowhere else other than your electorate. Uh, many people will vote, maybe even vote, most people will vote thoughtlessly, firmly of the view that their vote counts for little. After all, they don't live in a marginal seat and so what happens in their part of the world is pretty much a given. Uh, everyone else can be counted upon to vote thoughtlessly. They'll vote pretty much the same way they did last time. No one's moved very much. And so they'll just kind of vote without thought. I want to suggest that's a shame. It's a shame to do that. It's a shame just because uh, at one level the way we in Australia allocate political authority without political violence, we have no need for UN peacekeepers and election monitors. We have no real fear of the possibility of bloodshed except perhaps for some drunken lout slipping over on his way home after a party. These are great gifts. Uh, historically and culturally rare. There are not that many places in the world, even today, let alone 200 years ago, where the change and allocation of political authority occurred without the shedding of blood. And so it's a shame that we should take that privilege, that gift, as I prayed, uh, thoughtlessly. But it's even more a shame from a Christian point of view. Uh, I subtitled this talk, What's Jesus Got to Do With Politics? Uh, and the almost universally presumed answer to that is nothing. Whether that's from Christians or from non-Christians, the answer is nothing. Jesus has got nothing to do with politics because what Jesus has got to do with is religion. And what we know in our post-enlightenment culture is that religion is all about what individual souls do in the present life to ensure that they enjoy bliss in the next life. We even have a slogan for this. You may have heard it. It's called the separation of church and state. It's used to say Jesus has nothing to do with politics. Even though, of course, Originally, the purpose of the slogan was the exact opposite of that. It was to ensure that the state didn't interfere with the church. But the fact that what Jesus came to talk about, what Jesus came to announce and to, in fact, enact, was a kingdom, 
a kingdom, a commonwealth, a realm, a political reality in the fullest sense of that word, I want to suggest that's enough to give us pause before we give the answer that Jesus has nothing to do with politics. Uh, The fact that he was executed by the political authorities of his time on political charges in a highly political manner in the end, of course, just makes the view look silly. Has Jesus got nothing to do with politics? No way. No way. He's got everything to do with politics. And so this afternoon we're going to work on a specifically Christian answer to the question, who should I vote for? An answer informed by the reality that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. All spiritual authority in heaven and on earth, the authority to judge the adequacy of your life, Okay, that belongs to Jesus, all spiritual authority and all political authority, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. It's been given to him by resurrection. Now, at a a most straightforward level, that's going to prohibit you voting in a number of ways. It's going to prohibit you voting, as I say, mindlessly or carelessly. You should be thankful for this gift of being able to participate peacefully uh, in the allocation of political authority. It also will prohibit you voting on the basis of mere self-interest. What you can do and what the parties will help you to do, the major parties, is to calculate the tax break that you will get and then you can add to that the social security chunk that you're being offered and figure out what the largest dollar amount you can get if your gang gets in. Mere self-interest. It's pure. It's undiluted. It's disgusting. It's wicked and it's not an adequate Christian approach uh, to voting, to uh, engaging in our democracy out of mere self-interest. I think voting Christianly then thirdly will also prohibit voting on the basis of stereotypes at least as far as that's possible. Especially in in politics the staying power of stereotypes is quite remarkable. Uh, The right wing, that's this side for you, the right wing of politics and you're familiar with left and right you know what that means? If you don't know what that means, then <laughs> go back to high school. No. Uh, the right wing of politics will stereotype the left as economically incompetent. That's what you will hear time and time and time again. It will point back several hundred years to when a Labor government oversaw record interest rates and tell you they're still the same. It's good propaganda, I suppose. But it's nonsense to impute this guilt by association. Conversely, the left will stereotype the right as heartless and uncaring, interested in only letting the rich get richer and disinterested in the poor and needy. That is as foolish a stereotype as the other one. The fact is that, broadly speaking, the goals of all the major political parties are relatively close. Where they differ is not so much on the goals but on the means by which those goals are to be achieved and there there are some genuine differences. But the goals are relatively similar. The left is as economically irresponsible as the right is socially disinterested and that is not very much either one. So try and get past the stereotypes and prejudices. So that's how to not vote Christianly. How to vote Christianly will involve three things. Firstly, understanding what political authority is not. Secondly, understanding what political authority is. And then finally, seeing your vote as only a part of your involvement in your polis, your city, your society. Well, firstly then, what is, what is political authority not? 
It used to be the case uh, that the kingdom of God took directly political form. In that case, uh, political authority found its form as the kingdom of God. The old covenant was with the people of Israel who became the nation of Israel and in both forms, both as a people and then as a distinct nation with national boundaries, the rule of God was mediated directly through the rule of the leaders of Israel, whether in a kind of punctuated manner, that is raising up a judge, things going well for a while, crisis, God raised up another judge, so a kind of punctuated political leadership, or in a constant political leadership uh, in the form of the kings of Israel, uh, they were understood to be the agents of God. It was what we would call a theocracy. The rulers of Israel, who were called the sons of God, were enthroned by God to uphold his people and to defeat their enemies. Uh, The form that the kingdom of God took was a directly political form. What's more, not only in the past, but in the future, once again, the kingdom of God will take directly political form. The central Christian expectation about the future is not that the universe will slowly fade into a heat death, uh, nor that the elastic band will stretch for the universe and it will sort of come back into a big crunch to match the big bang. It's not even that you'll go to heaven when you die and escape this messy business called embodied life. That's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope, the confidence and expectation about the future that we have is that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead and, do you know what comes next in the creed? His kingdom will have no end. His kingdom will have no end. He will rule this world plainly and in view of, inside of all people and without quarrel. His kingdom will have no end. Interestingly, Jesus indicates that his disciples will in some way share in that political authority of the age to come. The 12 disciples will sit on 12 thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. And of course, that's nothing less than the fulfilment of the original purpose of God in creation. Revelation fulfills Genesis. That God would create his image-bearing people to rule over the earth, exercising his dominion on his behalf for him uh, in loving and perfecting rule over creation. So the kingdom of God was directly political in Israel. The kingdom of God will be directly political again in the age to come, in glory. But between those two moments where we live, the one thing that political authority is not in this what you call the age of the church is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God now takes a different form, not a directly political one. Uh, Oliver O'Donovan, and if you want to uh, follow up on some of these themes that we'll be looking at today, uh, Oliver O'Donovan is uh, perhaps the leading theologian on uh, political theology. He puts it this way. The kingdom of God can have no concrete representation upon earth except the indirect one afforded by the church. Listen to that again. The kingdom of God can have no concrete representation upon earth except the indirect one afforded by the church. Now that's a terribly, terribly important conclusion for a couple of reasons. Uh, When you vote, the, the one thing you're not seeking to do is to establish the kingdom of God on earth. No political party that will promise you utopia. And back in, I think it was 1990, Bob Hawke, uh, a, a great one in his own day and his own way, uh, promised no child in poverty by the year, I think it was by the year 1990. 
It was a utopian promise. It was a kingdom of God promise. To which old Christians said, don't be stupid. Because we know that the kingdom of God is not brought about via political parties and means. That's not the way, the form that the kingdom of God takes. You can seek to love and serve your neighbour, to serve the common good, but there is a strict and crucial difference between that and the form the political authority takes in our culture and the kingdom of God. Now, I suspect there's hardly a temptation for many of you yet, but for a previous generation frustrated at the fact that most people declined to become Christians, thought that they could achieve a similar kind of thing via a different route, that is, via politics. If we can't persuade people to become Christians into the kingdom of God, then we'll establish the kingdom of God, a reign of justice and right and truth and goodness and the eradication of poverty and evil and sin. We'll do it politically. Uh, And as you, uh, I think, as you get a little bit older and as your horizons begin to expand a bit more, right, and gets a bit beyond just getting through the next exam or finding your next girlfriend or boyfriend, um, you begin to wonder, well, I wonder what kind of contribution we could make. Surely if we only just got together, surely if we just cooperated and came up with a common vision for society, we could. Historically, this notion of a kind of gradual movement towards the kingdom of God uh, has been associated with a theological stream called post-millennialism. The idea that things get better and better and better until Christ kind of comes and adds the icing on the cake. But I'm saying it's a mistake to identify any structure, any earthly, any political structure, even directly any church structure. Notice O'Donovan's quite careful the only kind of representation on earth of the kingdom of God is an indirect one in the church. Nothing else. That's what we're not doing. Now, you see this uh, proper form of the separation of kingdom and state. I don't don't say church and state, but of kingdom and state in a wonderful little episode of intellectual battle between Jesus and his enemies in the last week uh, that he had in Jerusalem. That's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 22. And so if you have your Bible there, now's a good time to uh, reach for it, unsheathe it and open it up. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. They ask him a politically explosive question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor? To answer either way was a trap. If Jesus says yes, then he risks alienating the people for whom the tax was a dreadful oppression and possibly even be seen to endorse idolatry since the emperor claimed divine status. On the other hand, if Jesus says no, it's not lawful to pay tax, then he's just put his foot on a treasonous landmine. Jesus looks stuck, which is always a dangerous position to be in if you're the person who's put him in that position. Listen to what he says, verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said... Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Uh, In Jesus' usual kind of gentle uh, style. Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is the word I've got there? That's a very poor translation. Uh, The the word underlying it is very straightforwardly the uh, Greek word icon. Whose icon? Whose image is this? And whose title? They answered the emperors. Then he said to them, 
Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. You get what Jesus does? He takes a coin. I don't have any coins on me, but if you had a coin, you could take a coin out and look at Who would you see? Lizzie. Or if you had a note, if you're a rich person, you'd see some old Australian bloke. He takes a coin and he refers to the image on the coin. Now, image is a big Bible word, right? It's a significant Bible word. It is the word that refers to the fundamental description of what human beings are. That is, what they are in their relatedness to God. That is what defines a human being, the fact that they are related to God as his image. They image God. And Jesus says, whose image is on the coin... Well, it's the empress. So give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's coins. That's all. But give to God what's God's. And you see the kind of implied premise there? See, what is God's? Human beings. That's what belongs to God. That's where the image of God is. If you give the emperor the things which bear his image, then you give to God the things which bear his image. That is... Humans, life, meaning, significance, what it means to be a human being fulfilled and true and alive, meaningful and substantial, that is found in God. That is found in God. The worship of your heart, the sense of identity and power and meaning that you have as a human being, that is found in God and in particular, you see, therefore, not in any political structure. Uh, in a day where the uh, Pax Romana, the great sort of Roman peace, ruled and, and, and the pride of being a Roman citizen, the sense of power and fulfilment and meaning of what it meant to live as a human being was in the service of the empire. And Jesus says, no, don't give your heart, give your coins to the emperor, sure. Nonsense coins, that's all little bits of metal. But your heart, your being, it belongs to God. The kingdom of God for Jesus, you see, is not of this world. But notice at the same time, Jesus endorses involvement with political authority. He doesn't say just withdraw. Uh, that was an option at the time. The Essenes, the guys that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, had withdrawn from political, social and frankly religious involvement. But that's not Jesus' way. He says, render to the emperor that which is the emperor's. In particular, pay taxes. That is, the financial resources necessary for the task of exercising political authority. So what political authority is not? Political authority is not the kingdom of God. That's not what our government is trying to do. It's not what our government ought to do. It's not what our government can do. That is not the task of our government or of any political or, frankly, social structure. That is not the task. Well, what is the task? What is political authority for? See, instead of asking who should I vote for, perhaps the question is better approached by asking what is the task of political authority? What is the job of a government? And who would do that job best? And that's going to tell you who to vote for, isn't it? Interestingly, the answer is surprisingly clear in the New Testament about what the job of a government is. It's a very significant passage, Romans chapter 13, where Paul lays it out. Turn to it if you would. The context, as you may know, is all of Romans chapters 1 to 12. 
Uh, they're pretty easy and to understand, so you can just read them in your own time. Um, Paul gets to Romans uh, chapter 12 and says, well, in view of all of this, how do we worship God? How do we worship God? And he identifies three issues. Uh, on the one hand, we have to recognise that the form of this age is passing away and so not to be conformed to it, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to be conformed to Christ. And in particular, that will mean in relation to friendly people, others, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, that you will love and serve them. But, says the Apostle, there's another group of people, especially in his day and his time and place, unfriendly others, that is enemies, those who persecute you. And Paul is emphatic. In the context of persecution, there is to be no private justice. You are not to take vengeance into your own hands. You are not to repay evil for evil. Instead, you are to leave room for the wrath of God. And precisely then, the Apostle goes on to speak about the governing authorities. That is, the positive side that goes with the prohibition on vengeance. You don't take vengeance. You leave room for the wrath of God by being subject to the governing authorities. So listen to what he says, chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. What is the job of the governing authorities according to the New Testament? Uh, and here specifically the Apostle Paul, it is justice. And especially public justice. That is the job of the government. Giving judgment is the job of political authority. Or as Paul puts it, to be a terror to those who do evil, to execute wrath on the wrongdoer, and the governing authorities don't bear the sword in vain. That is, they wield the sword effectively. You know what they did with the sword? They did it pretty well, says the Apostle. And this is an authority from God. That's what he says. Now, he wasn't talking about great government here, just by the way. He's talking about the Roman Empire. And he says, this is the task of political authority. It's interesting. Uh, it's outrageous, actually. The apostle uses the word to describe uh, the governing authorities uh, as God's servant. The word is actually his deacons. They're his clergy, his deacons, his ministers. The authority of judgment is to be a deacon, but not in the church, uh, in the state. But justice will need to be organised. Uh, uh, it's very important that justice be organised because if justice is disorganised then it will lead to unjust outcomes and hence as well as the judicial arm of government that is the uh, judging arm that which dispenses justice there is an executive arm of government 
to provide for the means of justice, a full judicial system, courts, judges duly independent of those who appoint them, a police force, a department of public prosecutions to bring people to justice so that private vengeance is not the grounds of justice but rather public interest. And of course if you're going to have an executive to provide the means and administration of justice then what you need is something to pay them because those people need to be paid, don't they? And that's where taxes fit in. Verse 6, for the same reason you also pay taxes, says the Apostle. You see how kind of on top of this issue the Apostle is. For the authorities are God's servants busy with this very thing. That is not busy with other things. Pay to all what is due them. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due. Honour to whom honour is due. And do you hear an echo of Jesus' words here? Oh yeah, pay your taxes. Give respect. But you know who to worship, don't you? God. So political authority will have a judicial function. The judiciary, if you heard of that word, you know the word. It'll have an executive arm, that is the administration of the government which organises the judiciary. But from time to time also the law according to which judgment is given will need to be clarified or extended. Uh, you know, once the Romans got their super V8 chariots going, they needed to decide about speed limits and all that kind of stuff and which side of the road to go on, you know. They just, as technology changes and improves, as circumstances and uh, our, our context uh, adjusts, we need new laws. And so there will need to be, thirdly, a legislative arm of government. Uh, do you see that this is fairly straightforward for the scriptures here? There will be a judiciary and that's the primary function of government to give judgment, to execute public justice. But in order to do that it will have an executive arm raising taxes and paying and it will have a legislative arm determining what the law is. Now over time modern democracy has emerged to give order to these powers in a separated form uh, in what we call democratic government. But that's not necessary for the organisation of political power. Uh, it's, it's kind of an upside, I think. It's probably the least bad of all systems to have democracy. Uh, but it's not necessary for the Bible at all. Democracy is not sort of the Christian way of doing things uh, or mandated by the Bible. It's just one form of organisation of political authority uh, but that can take other forms as it certainly did in Paul's day. Uh, that is the job of government. Justice, public justice and the administration of public justice. But is that all? Now, this is an embarrassing test I'm going to give you now. Uh, who knows what our federal government actually does? Okay, do you have even the faintest clue? Let me ask you, you know who the Prime Minister is, don't you? Anyone not familiar with who the Prime Minister is? And you know who the possible alternative Prime Minister is? Do you know who the Deputy Prime Minister is? And what he does? And do you know who the alternative Deputy Prime Minister is? And what he does? She. Yes, thank you. Just trying to trick you, there you go. Um, there is a Department of Defence... Uh, which is the army. That's good to have an army. It's appropriate to have an army. That's how states are set up, in fact. If you look into the history uh, of most states, the way they are established is via their army and the army is related to the police force, which is the 
the, the, the power by which judgment is enforced. Okay? There's foreign affairs in our government, uh, which does diplomacy to try to prevent wars. That's good. There's the treasury. You need a treasury to collect taxes and distribute them. There's an attorney general, which deals with the relations between the uh, executive, the government, and the judiciary. That's what, four or five? Do you know how many other ministers of state there are? Twenty-five. We have 30 government departments at the federal level, 18 in the cabinet and 12 in the outer ministry. 30 ministers. Health, the arts, trade, education, science, employment, agriculture, you know, washing your hair, doing your toenails, (laughs) buying shoes. I mean, there's a department for everything. There is a department for virtually every element of society. A ministry, a minister and an executive. And if it's not at the federal level, then it's at the state level. Now, that's just very interesting, don't you think? Here's what the Bible says a government's for. It's for the administration of justice with an executive and a legislature. Then you look at here's what our government does and, and how are the two related to each other? How are the two related to each other? Well, it all depends on your view of society. And here I want to stretch you uh, and this is the main point I want you to think about today. Okay, This is going to be kind of deep. There are two main views as to how society is organised. One is what you might call a hierarchical view. Okay, The view that the different communities and elements of the society are all related to each other in, in particular kinds of ways And there's something at the top whose job it is to make all of these communities within our society work well. Now, I think this is pretty much typically the view that we have. It's only the view I had until recently. Um, there are different sub-communities like schools, especially public schools, uh, hospitals, especially public hospitals, and all of these are part of an overarching kind of thing called the state which has at its pinnacle a government whose job it is to make everything work well. Okay, do you see that? Now, now you've got to think very clearly as to whether you think that is biblically justifiable because there is an alternative view. There's an alternative view and the alternative view goes like this. It's one I believe is more in line with the Bible which is that there are different institutions in society that relate to different aspects of life that are all independent of one another, that are not related hierarchically to one another or to any other uh, authority other than God and that God is the one who provides the reality and the um, uh, Laws of operation according to each of these communities, each of these types. Uh, God is the creator of all the different aspects of reality and he gives to each aspect its own integrity. No one aspect, so there's the family, there's uh, health, there's uh, the arts, uh, there's education, 
There's business. Okay, economics. Uh, no one aspect or no one community, each of which reflects a different aspect of life, the economic aspect of life, the intellectual or logical aspect of life, the aesthetic aspect of life, uh, the biological aspect of life, uh, and this one, the kind of the familial aspect of life, if you like, none of these belong to, in a hierarchy, any other thing. This is what's called a flat management structure. Okay? Now, there are two different ways of viewing society. And I'm persuaded, for reasons I can't go into now because it takes too long and I don't understand it fully yet and when I try and explain it, no one else does either. This is more in line with what the Bible says than this. That is what I want to suggest to you. Now, in particular, uh, this can be seen when you understand the relationship between parts and a whole. You see, often the way we see society is that the different communities that make it up are part of one another in some sense and each of the communities are part ultimately of a great big thing called the state. Um, this, I think, is a very grave error. It turns out that the relationship of being a part of something else is a quite specific relationship. Uh, it means to, to be a part of something else is that uh, you function in the internal organising of the whole, that it can't exist apart from the whole, uh, but also that it has the same purpose as the whole. Uh, so, for example, you have a duodenum, I believe. I don't know what it does, but I understand that if you don't have it, it's very bad for you. Your duodenum is part of you. It functions uh, internally to you, consistently as part of the integrity of your body. Uh, it can't exist without you. It'll die if you aren't around. And it serves the same purpose as you, your whole body as a whole. Three things. Okay? What this means is that a human being can never be part of anything else. A human being can never be a part of any other kind of institution or organisation. Why? Because even though a human being might be integral to a particular community and uh, the human being can exist apart from that community but never is the purpose of the human being replaced by or overridden by the purpose of that community. You can't have human beings who are a part of a business. The job of a business is to make a profit. That's its purpose. But the job of a human being is not to make a profit. What's the job of a human being? What is the chief end of man, as the Westminster Confession doth truly teach? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Exactly. Not, by the way, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. For those with ears to hear, let them hear. Uh, but uh, to glorify God and enjoy him forever is what it says. That's the job of a human being. So a human being can never be a part of some other institution. It can be a member, right, but not a part of. Now, what this turns out to mean is that the part-whole relationship is very rare in society. Families are not a part of the state. Schools are not a part of the state. Businesses are not a part of the state. They are each independent, distinct communities with their own purposes. 
where their purposes come from? They come from God. The state is instituted by God, the governing authorities. It gets its authority from God. The family gets its authority from God. Businesses get their authority from God to do business. Now, a state may have many parts. Uh, municipalities, uh, shires, or the shire if you're sort of that way inclined. Uh, it may have parts like uh, the, uh, an army or a court system. But you can understand the point that I'm making. If this is true, if these different institutions and communities which reflect different aspects of life are not dependent upon one another by being a part of some grander overarching thing, then they are just irreducibly distinct. A family has a distinct overarching purpose. It's structured according to its own laws. It can exist and function where there's no state. So even when it exists within the territory governed by a particular state, it can never be one of that state's parts. Um, It's just the case that we're looking at diversity here. Now, a state may choose to support another community. So there's one here, right? Which is the state, which exercises political authority. Okay, it may be that the state chooses, and I'm going to pick a controversial example, chooses to help another community, say a school. But then, and especially then, it's got to be recognised that the supported thing has a nature that's distinct from the state. Okay, the job of schools is to educate people. The job of states is to give public justice. They're different jobs. So when the state helps education or health or the arts or whatever it might be, what do we call it when the state imposes its values on the arts? Yeah, and propaganda, isn't it? That's what we turn the arts into because the arts have their own reality given to it by God to express the aesthetic aspect of the world. So on a Christian view... Uh, I want to suggest to you, it's not the state's job to educate young people. The job of educating young people actually belongs in families, according to the Bible. It's parents' job to educate children. It's not the government's job, it's parents' job. The government might help. It might do so by setting up government schools, by raising taxes and by setting up schools. But that is the government helping parents do their job, not parents helping the government. And that means that when the government does get involved in education, it must be very careful not to do so as a state, right, but as a help to parents. Governments can quite appropriately be secular. Okay, it's quite appropriate for governments to be secular, to administer justice within a straightforward secular framework. But because education is necessarily more than merely reading, writing and arithmetic... Education necessarily involves moral and spiritual education. A government mustn't run secular schools if parents want the education of their kids to include special religious education. Do you see, do you see where this kind of all, this theory, these two different options all kind of comes down to land? That's why our government uh, in our state has wisely allowed SRE to continue because it realises that when it comes to education, strictly speaking, it's operating on someone else's turf. It's operating on families' turf. And it's up to families to say whether they want kids 
to receive religious education in their schooling or not, not the government. And if the government seeks to impose secular education on a society, then Christians will rightly oppose government education at that point because it's not the government's job to impose secular education upon young people. Do you understand how this works? If you take a different view about the nature of society and in particular if you see different communities here as parts of a great overarching state, then you'll come up with very different views about the job of the government. I want to suggest that a Christian view, particularly arising from a Christian understanding of creation, rejects the notion of a hierarchical society as a whole. The distinctive nature of different social communities is such that they are rarely parts of other wholes. They're just different. Life is plural. Life is diverse. Social life included. Um, So, where this goes, I think, is uh, the notion of a limited state. Where this will lead you to is the idea that the state ought to be limited precisely because of our non-reductionist view of society. It's not that the state overarches all different communities in our society. The state has a particular, very important, God-given deacon task to administer justice, to raise taxes and to pass laws. Crucial task. And families don't get to uh, run the state. And the state can interfere with families from time to time. If a family, for example, uh, is physically abusing children, then it's very important that the state at that point intervenes and brings about public justice. But of course the state is not responsible for all justice. What if I'm prejudiced towards one of my children? I like one better than the other. I do actually, but anyway, what if... (laughs) No, that's not true, that's not true. Although there is one who's going through a phase of pretty much three times a day saying how much she loves me and how fantastic I am. So I I think she's doing okay. (laughs) So so that is unjust for me to differentiate and be prejudiced uh, and biased against some and four others of my children. But it's no business of the state, is it? That's not a matter of public justice. That's a matter of private justice. my God and my church needs to help me at that point uh, walk a better walk. But when it's a matter of public justice, say the interference with the body, physically abusing a child, at that point the state's quite right to interfere in a family, but not otherwise. Families are not a part of the state. And so they have their own integrity. The state is a particular social institution qualified by a particular overarching purpose within which it has a particular authority and that is given by God. And God is the source of all authority. He's the source of parental authority. He's the source of state authority. He's the source of economic authority. People who invest capital to make businesses have the authority to run their businesses given to them by God. Each community and society is to have its own kind of sovereignty and integrity. So, who should you vote for? Who you should vote for is who you think will do the best job of governing the way the Bible thinks the governing authorities should govern. That's who you should vote for. Now, I'm not going to suggest a particular person or party or Prime Minister. Uh, It's not my business and I'm not sure how it goes. What I want you to do, though, is to think 
Do you think society is like this or like this? In which case, if society is like this, what is the job of the government? If society is like this, what is the job of the government here? And which party, left, right, Labor, Liberal, Greens, Christian Democrats, or any other shooters party, I have nothing to say about them. <laughs> uh, which one will do the best job? That is your task. Not so much to vote, although I hope you do vote, it's important that you vote, and not just vote, actually take up civic responsibility more generally. You see, what I find inspiring about this is that I, I indwell all, so, all of these different communities and I can make a contribution of not just voting when it comes to the state but contributing in all sorts of different ways in the different communities of which I'm a part. All of them established as part of God's good purpose, all of them theatres of his glory and of your service. That's who you should vote for.